This season of the Curiosity Club podcast is sponsored by Simprove. Simprove is committed to furthering the understanding of the function and role of the gut microbiome by using a scientific approach to developing the most effective bacteria-based product. Put simply, Simprove helps to support your gut microbiome and balance your gut bacteria. What I love about it is its water-based formulation that contains four unique strains of live-activated bacteria. Because of this unique formulation, Simprove will not trigger digestion, meaning the bacteria will arrive to your gut unharmed and in full strength, survive the harsh acidic environment that is your stomach, and thrive in your gut to colonise successfully. Simprove's 12-week programme will give you the best chance of nourishing your gut bacteria and supporting your gut microbiome. The more I learn about gut health, the more important I realise it is. And I'm currently in my 12-week programme and I love knowing that I am supporting and topping up the good bacteria that lives within me. If you want to join me on your own programme, Simprove have been kind enough to give all you lovely curious folk a special 15% discount for a limited time using the code CuriosityClub15. Welcome to the Curiosity Club podcast, a safe place for the real life lessons that we didn't get taught in school. Each season, I have conversations with inspiring experts who share their wisdom around our seven peaks of curiosity. Together, we learn how to break the patterns, habits, and mindsets that limit our potential, hinder our happiness, and impact our well being. I'm your host, life and business coach Katri Barrett, and these are the life lessons for modern humans. You're listening to season two, episode four. Welcome back, curious people. I hope you're all keeping well and staying safe during this unlocking period that so many of us are in right now. I'm so, so looking forward to sharing this particular episode with you all today for numerous reasons. It is slightly longer than usual because I'm speaking to not one, but two guests. And I did try editing it down to make it a little shorter, but I simply couldn't cut anything because I feel like... It is all so valuable. Everything that we spoke about is so important. My guests today are Clover Hogan and Caroline Hickman. Clover is a 21-year-old climate activist, researcher on eco-anxiety, and the founder of Force of Nature, a youth-led organisation empowering her generation to step up rather than shut down in the face of our planet's messiest problems. Caroline is a psychologist, counsellor, and researcher specialising in climate psychology. Through her research at the University of Bath and her work with the Climate Psychology Alliance, Caroline brings a psychotherapeutic understanding to the climate and biodiversity emergency. Caroline also hosts the Climate Crisis Conversations podcast series entitled Catastrophe or Transformation. Eco-anxiety is a topic I've wanted to explore on the podcast since I started it, but I will be completely honest in that I was too afraid to talk about it because it's something that I personally struggle with and certainly have a lot in the past before this conversation. It has profoundly changed since recording this episode. I feel so much more empowered to take action and in order to navigate those emotions I was feeling. They're certainly not gone, but I'm able to hold space for them in a way that I wasn't before. In this incredibly confronting but empowering conversation with Clover and Caroline, we explore some very painful truths about climate change and how, in the light of all these facts, we can all navigate feelings of despair, hopelessness and powerlessness. As you will hear, this conversation was pretty transformative for me, and I hope that it is for you too. I'm very grateful to both Caroline and Clover for all the work that they do, and 
for giving me a little therapy session when we spoke and recorded for this episode. This discussion enabled me to stop fearing and hiding from the anxiety and often terror that I feel when I think about the future of the planet. And Caroline and Clover give their expert tips on how we can all turn that anxiety into agency to become internal and external activists. Whilst developing the robust resilience we all need to help us navigate the climate crisis as a global village. You'll learn how you too can tap into what Caroline so beautifully refers to as radical hope. Please do reach out to me about anything that comes up for you during this episode over on Instagram at the Curiosity Club underscore, or you can always email me on hello at catrybarrett.com. If you are struggling with eco-anxiety and it's impacting your everyday life, then do reach out to someone, whether that's your GP or to a therapist like Caroline, whose link to her website I will leave in the show notes so that you can reach out to her. Enjoy this episode. Just a quick note, most of the interviews were recorded during lockdown over Zoom, which isn't the best for audio, so please do excuse the sound quality, we were doing the best with what we had. Welcome to the Curiosity Club, Clover and Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Can we start by each of you telling us a little bit about your work, what you do and your journey to where you are? If we start with you, Clover. Um, yes, so I will save you the life story, but um, grew up in uh, Australia's tropical North Queensland, which is where I really fostered my, my deep love for the natural world. My dad's a botanist, my mum's a personal development coach, but I'm kind of the laboratory experiment of that combination. Um, when I was 11, I started watching documentaries about the environment, about our exploitation of the natural world, and was filled with such uh, despair and rage at what we were doing um, that I wanted to I wanted to do something. And in the kind of dark of these problems, there there were pockets of light, and and that was light being shone on the problems by people who were putting their lives on the line, journalists, documentary makers. And I decided that I wanted to, to become one. I wanted to become an activist. Uh, so when I was thirteen coerced my parents into moving to Indonesia so that I could go to a place called the Green School, which is wall-less bamboo classrooms in the middle of the jungle. And there I was right at home, but it was also my launch pad into the world. So I started working within the UN. I started working with uh, business leaders. But no matter which kind of space I occupied, I kept having this kind of niggling feeling in the back of my mind um, that that just made me feel super overwhelmed. And it reached this kind of crescendo point when I was 16 at COP21 in Paris, uh, negotiating with policymakers. I felt so despairing at the bureaucracy of this system that I felt for the first time in, in my career as an activist this immense powerlessness. Um, and from there, I realized that, you know, whether it was working with 11-year-olds in the classroom or working with business leaders, we all experience this. We all experience this helplessness in the face of, you know, the climate and ecological crisis. And that's really where this obsession was ignited with mindset and the realization that the greatest threat we faced wasn't in fact the climate crisis, but our feeling of powerlessness in the face of it. And so I kind of made it my mission to understand why we respond in the way that we do, what the inconsistencies in our mindset are. Um, and last year met Caroline, of the Climate Psychology Alliance and immediately hit it off because here was someone who had actually dedicated their entire career to this very question and this very field. Um, and so from there, he's been working with young people around the 
well to turn anxiety into agency. Um, started an organization last year called Force of Nature, and we kind of straddle the world with mental health and, and the climate crisis to see how we can not only hold space for all of these feelings, but channel much of that energy into taking on some of the planet's messiest problems. Wow. I think it's incredible. It's incredible everything that you've achieved. And I love hearing hearing about it. I can't wait to go into it a little bit more. And Caroline, can you tell us a little bit, give your, your little background, your background and everything that, that um, you kind of do within your work as well? Yes. Hello. Absolutely. So... Um, my work has got one foot in the world of the academic world. I teach at the University of Bath and my research through the university is into how children and young people feel about the climate and biodiversity crisis. And I've been doing that research for about six years now specifically because a lot of the research up to that point was talking about the impact of climate crisis on children, but not asking them how they felt about it. So it was failing to recognize that children themselves have agency and children themselves has viewpoints and feelings about this, which I was thinking we need to use their feelings and thoughts to inform some of the solutions that we find. So that's my kind of academic background. And then I also work with the Climate Psychology Alliance, which is a group of psychologists, psychotherapists, researchers, academics, and artists. And we're bringing the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis, a psychological, psychotherapeutic understanding of that, to look under the surface because in a nutshell, we've had the practical solutions to the climate and biodiversity crisis for 50, 60, 70 years and failed to act on this. So it is not just a rational problem. And we as human beings are not just rational creatures. If we were, there would be no war, there would be no famine, there would be no child abuse. So this is using a psychological framework, which is a depth psychology understanding where we look at the unconscious, the role of the unconscious, we look at defenses, and we look at defenses against hearing what we would say are painful truths or uncomfortable truths. Because by exploring those and examining those, rather than leaping towards technological or rational solutions, by examining what it is that makes us human and why as humans, for example, we may have self-destructive tendencies, unconscious desires to avoid change, that we can start to kind of enable and support people in looking at what's going on under the surface and what's getting in the way of making change. Uh, through the Climate Psychology Alliance, I've been developing a series of podcasts. I take the lead on our outreach. We've got therapeutic support where we, we have 70 psychotherapists at the moment in, I think it's six countries in the world, who will give some free psychotherapy or local psychotherapy to people who are struggling with eco-anxiety. So we're trying to provide support to people out there. We run climate cafes, training. We've been going out to work with groups and organizations who've been approaching us saying, you know, doctors and psychologists and psychotherapists saying, we don't really know how to engage with eco-anxiety and with the new psychological distress that is appearing in people. So we're taking the lead on trying to help people think about that. 
um, and develop training, like I said. And really, I think what's underneath all of this is very much a relational approach that we have to be in relationship, not just within ourselves internally, but also externally. We have to examine things like the process of othering and blame and shame and how we shift the responsibility onto other people. Um, and that means, again, coming back to this looking at the shadow of this. Some of the personal work I've done uh, is with youth activist groups and young people, with parents and families. Um, and with really, I think I've also got a real strong interest in developing new stories and new narratives because using ancient myths and ancient stories is of value to us and helpful in developing the wisdom that we need here to navigate our way through this. But we also, I think, need some new stories because so much of what we're dealing with, whether it's the climate biodiversity crisis or the current pandemic, there is no map for how humanity is going to manage to deal with all of these things. So we have, it's a very alive psychological process, relational process at the moment, where I think we're all learning a great deal as we go and as, we, as it emerges and changes all the time. So I think it's about being agile and being flexible and about being able to move with that as we learn new things and not getting too sort of attached to old patterns of behavior if we're going to develop the wisdom and the self-reliance and the robustness and the resilience and the internal activist as well as the external activist. Mm. That's a really interesting, like the internal and external activists. I think that's a really, what, what, can you tell us now actually, what would you mean by that a little bit for those people listening that maybe don't quite know what that might mean? Sure. Um, so one of the things that, you know, eco-anxiety has been uh, emerging as a, a thing that people are not just recognizing in themselves, but recognizing is something that a large number of people are increasingly facing as we face the reality of the climate and biodiversity crisis. It's an incredibly emotionally healthy, congruent response to the reality of what we're facing in the world whether it's through the melting of the ice, the wildfires, the warming oceans, the degradation of the environment generally, it would make perfect sense to feel anxious in the face of this. But it's not just anxiety, is it? Anxiety, if you like, is the gateway emotion, but then we're also needing to explore and examine how we feel in relation to depression and despair and hopelessness and shame and guilt and grief and anger because all of those feelings come with that. What worries me slightly is when people kind of make the leap, it's a sort of shortcut from eco-anxiety to eco-activism, as though activism would be the cure for anxiety, as though anxiety were in itself a problem. Whereas I would be arguing anxiety is actually a really healthy response and it's a sign of empathy and it's a sign of compassion and it's a sign that you're awake and it's a sign that you care. And we shouldn't be trying to get away from it. We should be trying to understand it and find the meaning in it and then channel and harness that anxiety into deeper, sustainable activism. And one of the only ways to do that is to not attempt the shortcut to get rid of the anxiety, to make sense of it, listen to it, learn from it, because actually it's got a really important message for us. And that would take us downwards. It would take us down into deeper emotions of grief and despair of what we've done to the planet, that in itself then changes us internally. And then if we're able to process those feelings as opposed to try and escape from them in a kind of defense 
of, oh, I've just got to do something as a way of getting away from the feelings. By integrating those feelings and coming to terms with them, we grow emotionally in terms of our resilience and our robustness. And then our activism, when we come back through acceptance and grief to activism, that activism is then sustained by an emotional range, which means when we hit a bump in the road or we hit resistance or we hit people who are ignorant or in denial or don't want to listen to us, we don't crash and burn. We don't collapse. We're emotionally resilient and robust and flexible and we can go, okay. And then we can grow around that and find a different way to deal with this. So it's about not being over idealistic, but not being too pessimistic, but finding that wise route that, takes into account the need for moments of depression and despair and grief because they're real. But we don't want to collapse into those. We need to balance those up with some radical hope and optimism and forward thinking. But you don't want to collapse into that either because that's in denial of the grief and despair. So it's about being, it's a both and solution. So that's the internal activism. And that in turn then mirrors back out into the world a kind of changed relationship internally with yourself, which means fundamentally, and I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish, but fundamentally, if we recognize that interrelationship between ourselves and our internal emotional environment and the external environment, we would see that every time we destroy some part of the environment of the ecosystem externally, we're actually hurting ourselves. We're damaging ourselves. And that relationship is then in turn passed on to the way we treat other people, other species. It's that lack of care, lack of empathy, lack of concern. So it's saying we need to do both. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much. I think that's, it's so important and I think powerful to begin to see it like that rather than resisting these emotions. It's a healthy response to feel this fear, to feel this anxiety. And I think, as I, I mentioned to both of you before we started um, talking, when I reached out to you, personally for me, it's, it's something that I have found to be hugely triggering and, and the, with everything in the climate tr- crisis as someone who's in the past suffered from clinical anxiety for many years and have, you know, for the, over the past seven years, as all of the listeners will know, kind of spent, uh, done a lot of internal work and work and still do on, on my mindset and, and mental health and emotional resilience. I like to think of my kind of, uh, the kind of, my, um, the moment I feel like my Achilles heel to, the anxiety, my, to having anxiety is the climate crisis. That's the, thing, the only thing now that causes me to lose sleep, that causes me to feel panic rising in, in like viscerally in my body. That's, that's the thing. And that's why I think I'm, I know it's so important to explore it, exactly as, as you were saying there, Caroline, that we need to kind of, in order to grow and learn and be the external activists, and we need to become the internal activists. And that's the big reason why I, I want to talk about it now after wanting to do this this episode for so for so very long. Um, can, I'm, I just, can I just respond to something you just said there? I, I have to. So yeah. don't, I'm so not you, asking. I'm telling you. I'm sorry. Um, Clover's used to me being bossy. Um, I was just curious about what you said about the Achilles heel. Yeah. Because when you were speaking about that, I was thinking, actually, you're still framing that slightly negatively. That this is somehow a flaw, that this is somehow a fault, that this is somehow problematic. 
And actually, I would want to frame that completely differently. I would want to say you need that vulnerability that that Achilles heel gives you because it's that that connects you with the vulnerability of the environment. It's that that connects you with the vulnerability of other people elsewhere in the world who are suffering wildfires and floods. It's that that connects you with the voiceless children and the other species who themselves cannot stand up for themselves, cannot verbalize their needs. So you need that Achilles heel. Do not try and get rid of it. You need to honor it, welcome it, value it, respect it, appreciate that through that wounding, what that gives you is a deep capacity for empathy and compassion with others Mm. and to not be so scared of it. And that that might mean that you need to shift in your relationship with it and heal some of your relationship with it so that you're less afraid of it. And I can spend longer talking through with you how we do that. But I don't, when, when I hear you talk about the Achilles heel, I think, oh, no, actually that is of such value to you. We need to love that flaw, that wounding. We need to appreciate it and value it. Because if somebody tries to take that away from you, they're taking away your heart, your compassion, your empathy, and your humanity. Thank you for pointing that out because I do you know what and it is. It's I call, refer to it as that, and as you say, seeing it negatively because, it, quite frankly, it scares the shit out of me. Like that, that is that is the thing that scares me so much. I'll shut up in a minute, but listen, I have to. I will shut up in a minute, I will shut up. I know it scares you, but it's the feelings about the feelings that are the problem. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And if you can shift your relationship with that fear and listen to that fear and allow that fear and listen to the wisdom of that fear, that can transform. The podcasts that we're doing in the uh, Climate Psychology Alliance are called Catastrophe or Transformation. So what we're talking about is taking these things that the traditional Western medical model calls a problem and saying, why is this a problem? Actually, this is part of what it means to be human, to be scared. I'm scared, I'm depressed, I'm despairing, I'm guilty, I'm ashamed, I'm eating my body weight in chocolate biscuits to get through this pandemic, so shoot me, I'm human, right? This is what it means to be human. And actually, it's my capacity to be human that makes me immensely valuable and able to understand, to deeply empathize and understand the youth climate strikers that I'm speaking with, who are currently in such despair that they are suicidal. Why would I want that gift, that capacity, that empathy, that deep understanding of what it means to be human taken away from me? I wouldn't. And it's the Western medical model that pathologizes experiences that are uncomfortable or threatening or frightening, like fear or anxiety, as a problem. They're not a problem. They're your greatest gifts. Mm. And you've said something that I think I find really interesting for, the, for both of you, the work that you do. You're working in... in um, very much take ta- especially kind of like take, tackling things head on to do with the, the climate crisis or working with individuals who are really uh, struggling you, you mentioned there Caroline working with indiv- activists who are suicidal mm-hmm. wondering how how do you both cope personally Clover I'll, I'll ask you that first yeah so um, 
the first conversation that I ever had with Caroline gave me what I would describe as an emotional hangover for about three days. Um, because in the same way she just, you know, picked you up on your on the language that you use, she did the same thing with me. And it was a real turning point in my activism because up until that point, I had been researching this thing called ecophobia, which is coined by a bunch of wacky psychologists back in the 80s and refers to the feeling of powerlessness in the face of environmental catastrophe. And from there, I began to research climate anxiety and the feelings of despair and grief that, as Caroline said, are the perfectly natural human response to these problems. Now, I always thought that those feelings emerging in me were something that I had to beat into submission. I thought that they would keep me from being my most effective kind of self and taking on these big, messy problems. And through my work with Caroline, and I will completely attribute this to her and also to my mum, who does a lot of work around Jungian psychotherapy, I realized that actually my power lies in diving deep into those feelings. And I remember Caroline describing it as kind of, you know, in Jungian terms, swimming deep down into the lakes of your unconscious and then putting your hands in the mud. So looking in the face of the thing that you don't want to. And, and Caroline talked to the fact that, you know, we exist in a, in a culture that psychologically labels certain feelings as good and certain feelings as really bad. Mm. And, you know, if you think about positivist psychology, it's very American caricature of well-being, which is like, be your best self, be your smartest, brightest, whatever, most powerful. And we're not acknowledging the parts of ourselves that are vulnerable. And in fact, so much of the kind of cognitive dissonance and, and real despair when it tips into to that powerlessness and where you are immobilized stems from numbing ourselves to the situation. And if we think about this moment in time, you know, we're being forced to press pause on these kind of systems that we've just become really complacent with, you know, hyper-globalized, hyper-consumptive. Part of the real struggle with a lot of the young people I work with, even engaging in activism, is that they're seeing it through such a rose-tinted window. It's still very much a kind of savior complex, right? And they look to the aggressors of the world and they say, oh, I could never do what she does. You know, she's smarter, she's more experienced, I'm not that courageous. And that's because we see a single, single vignette into that person's life. We don't see the struggle. We don't see the despair. You know, it's, it's been hugely liberating for me to become much more open on my own social media platforms about the days when I do wake up and I have zero motivation, you know, and this, this real tipping point for me, I suppose, came toward the end of last year with the fires back in Australia. Um, and I found myself, because I was doing this kind of mental gymnastics, I just started spontaneously crying in public and I just started breaking down and my body was literally forcing me to pause and to look in the face of the feelings that I didn't want to. And in doing so, grieve for a country, grieve for a culture, grieve for my childhood. You know, the fact that going back to Australia would never again be the same country. I had to go through that process. And we all do, you know. And if we think about climate anxiety, it's, it's easy to assume that it kind of stems from reading the latest reports that we have, you know, 10 years left, 11 years left to completely change every part of how we live, breathe, and exist in the 21st century. But largely, if you also look to um, the separation of, you know, indigenous culture, um, this is an anxiety that stems from centuries of separation from the natural world. 
you know, we have grown to think of nature as another, separate to ourselves. And we see that in the systems in which we operate, right? We, we, as Caroline first put it, we, we don't value the tree for all of the incredible ecosystem services that it provides us. We, we've learned to value the paper and for the table that it provides us. So we're seeing this breakdown in systems of how we have commodified not only the natural world, but how we have commodified ourselves, how we've broken social contracts. We've become okay with forgetting a, a massive proportion of society and othering them. And all of this is now flooding at us at a thousand miles an hour. And it can be hugely overwhelming. The only way, if you think about it as like swimming in the ocean, you have big waves coming toward you. You're not going to weather that storm by staying on the surface. Right? You have to dive underneath, right? You have to go deep. And through that, you can come out the other side with that agency and with that kind of motivation. But otherwise, you're just going to be trapped. Um, so I would say the way that I've learned to deal with it is in large part thanks to Caroline. And it's, it's learning to create space for those feelings. And, you know, grief is not something to be experienced alone. So finding people, finding your tribe that you can hold space for as well, um, doing so very much in a place of community rather than just being trying to do everything alone all the time. Mm. And it sounds, I, th- I love that analogy that you just used about where, if you're going to weather the storm, you need to dive deep and using that to, to kind of get to those vulnerable feelings. And also you touched on something I think so powerful that loads of us have been, again, forced to realise at the moment we're, we're recording this during um, lockdown in the coronavirus, uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. And um, the power of community and actually speaking up and being honest about how, how, how you're feeling, the good, the bad, the positive, the hard, it just reminds us um, how important that that is. Something we touched upon again just before we start recording that I think is really, really relevant is what what can we learn from the response, the reaction that we have all been seeing? We're still in the midst of it. We don't know with the, this pandemic, you know, what, things are going to look like in a, month, a few weeks, a month, a few months. Um, but I'm really fascinated to kind of hear your, both of your thoughts on, on what, what maybe we can learn from, from this experience in, in terms of, of the climate crisis. I mean, there's so many possibilities of what we could learn here. And I have to say, I have great doubts that we will learn And I suspect that we will have to go through this repeatedly before we start to learn the lessons. So I'm afraid I'm starting with my own feelings of, and I think that might be my feeling of caution and anxiety, because I think to think about the lessons we could learn from this pandemic in an over-hopeful way, in a simplistic way, is potentially quite dangerous. Um... You know, what we could learn is hubris and humility that there are things that are more powerful than us. Um, And that the only way to address these and to deal with these is to understand our vulnerability. If we continue to have the relationship that we do with the natural world to cut down forests, it is going to cause more pandemics. If we continue to 
treat animals and exploit animals in the way that we do, either in modern farming methods or in the wet markets, where we put animals close together and then viruses jump from species to species, we're going to face more of these. So it's up to us, really. We can learn the lessons quickly or we can continue to arrogantly think that we can beat this using our sort of narcissistically entitled anthropomorphic worldview, which is humans are the apex creatures. And we will beat this. We will get a vaccination and we will beat this. Well, if we go down that road, we are absolutely sunk because that's what's got us into this mess in the first place. So I worry that that is the road that we are likely to go down, which will be driven by economic demands of let's get back to normal, because normal was not so great. Normal was, you know, huge populations around the world starving. Normal was, you know, small numbers of people owning unbelievable wealth and vast numbers living in poverty. Normal was large numbers of young people suffering terrible mental health problems. That was our normal. Well, I'm not so keen on that normal. So actually what the pandemic is giving us is the opportunity to stop and think and reflect and make choice. Is that the normal we want to get back to? Now that may be the normal that a few people want to get back to, but I don't think it's the majority. And it's whether the majority can speak up and take action and say, no, we don't want that. And I've seen signs of that, for example, in some countries like the Netherlands saying, actually, no, we need to move to new economic models like the donut model. We cannot come out of this and go back to life as it was before. So there is some wisdom, some green shoots of wisdom out there. But I think what I'm most frightened of is that we don't wake up and get wise to the roots of this problem, the roots of the pandemic. And if we just take a superficial approach to this, try and find a vaccine and go back to life as it was before, we'll just be facing this for many years to come and the next pandemic will be much worse. And then the next one will be even more worse. And this will become the new normal. And much as I like the cleaner air and the pictures of cities, with less polluted air that we're seeing on the internet. So you can see Delhi with the clean air now compared to how it was before. Not just Delhi, many, many cities. I dread the next picture that will emerge after a month of industrial un, you know, activity being unleashed, which will be polluted again. And how we will have to deal with that despair and that loss of hope, because... At the moment, there is that little teeny, teeny, teeny possibility that we're realizing that people can change when they have to. And I think to crush that would be, would lead to phenomenal levels of depression and despair in people. So I'm really praying that that doesn't happen. Mm. And Clover, what do, what do you think, what, what would be some things that people could use to build on that wisdom and, and maybe kind of what do we need to be doing to, to lessen the, the kind of impact of the, or, or in order to not just go straight back to, to how things were and, and kind of build on, on the positives of what, what has happened in the last, uh, for the environmental, environmentally wise over the last uh, month or so. Yeah, so I think 
you know, the pandemic is no solution for the climate crisis, but the opportunity is that we have seen what is possible when there is the political will and when there is the social momentum. And, you know, many of the kind of changes and at least the level of radicalism um, that has been demanded in the climate space for the past 50, 60 years, we saw happen in a matter of weeks when leaders realized that it was their necks on the line. Um, and in fact, their <laughs> opportunity to get reelected depended on how they responded to this situation. Um, I think this crisis has really exposed who the true leaders are and, and who the tyrants are, if that wasn't already abundantly clear before. We're seeing the leaders who are genuinely invested in the well-being of the population versus mm -hmm. those who are just interested in getting another, um, you know, election term. And so with that, I think, you know, we're talking about this kind of pause. We're talking about the fact that life has, you know, stopped in many ways and we're in this weird kind of limbo. And there are, there are certain parallels to the climate anxiety in terms of, fear in terms of the uncertainty, the big question mark, um, in terms of the feeling of powerlessness. I think one of the great frustrations, if you think about it, you know, washing hands in the face of a pandemic kind of feels equivalent to when you're told to buy another reusable coffee cup in the face of the climate crisis, right? On an individual level, uh, our individual actions do not add up to the scale of the crisis. And so that's why I feel that in this moment in time, to answer your question, one of the things that we can invite into this moment is a challenge to how we have perceived power. Now, power is largely thought of as something that is very hierarchical. It's kind of embedded in this dominion type complex. It's what Caroline was talking about. It's, you know, very anthropocentric humans at the top of the chain exerting downward. And then we see that through the different levels of society, the fact that there is gross socioeconomic inequality, a handful of people own the majority of the world's wealth. It's an opportunity to completely rethink that paradigm. Power not as something that is exerted onto us and that holds us in subjugation, but power that is something innate and that emanates from every one of us and that we are able to tap into when we stop subscribing to those systems and we stop being complacent with the fact that there are people in terrible, terrible situations who experience the suffering many of us in our privilege bubbles will never even touch on. When we begin to actually look in the face of those feelings and think about what it is as our role as the highest kind of form of humanity to be in service of something that is bigger than yourself, to support your fellow man or woman, right? It's, it's acting beyond the individual to think, how can we work together to emerge into a radically different future? And I would say that absolutely, you know, the chances of us going through a total upheaval and reinvention of every part of how we live and breathe and exist is slim. But I would also say that we need that radicalism and we need that tenacity. And we also need to relinquish our expectations to an extent and also our attachment to outcome. That's been a really big lesson for me working in the climate space um, is that often in the wake of protest, in the wake of action comes powerlessness when demands are not met by people in perceived positions of authority. Now, there is every chance that our leaders will fail us in this crisis. I mean, they already have sentenced hundreds of thousands of people to die 
due to their self-interest, right? And there is every chance that governments will bail out the airline industries and that governments will bail out the very people who don't need the help and who should actually be brought down and whose power should be diminished. So rather than attaching our purpose and our sense of success to that, we need to kind of let go. And it seems super counterintuitive, but I feel that only in relinquishing that are we able to kind of navigate going forward. Um, because otherwise you do lose your hope. You know, if your if your action is dependent on a particular outcome that is dependent on something that is fundamentally external to you and out of your control, um, then it's just it's a very clear fast track to despair. I had a conversation with a friend about this the other day who um, is a campaigner in the U.S. and has helped elect you know some really incredible politicians into power in this country who are fighting for progressive values. But he experienced his first loss last summer. And I was like, how was that? You know, investing so much of yourself into this one outcome. And he said that his version of winning completely changed because it was no longer about that individual. It was how you were planting the seeds of opportunity, the seeds of hope, the seeds of a different reality in the present. And that was what was important. And so, you know, in this moment in time, we need to think about how we're bringing that better, brighter future that we desperately want to emerge into into the present moment and how we can leave from that place as individuals in every part of how we interact with one another and how we choose to show up to solve these problems. But it's the better place we're going to be as a global village to take on the climate crisis, to take on the ecological crisis. I love that description of a global village. I think it's so important just to start seeing like that. And I think hopefully one thing that we, I hope, can count on going forward with this is that more people are realising that we are one, that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter who you are, we are. If something happens globally, it affects all of us. And that's something that I, I hope that more people, at least more people are, are, are realising that. Can I say something about that? Because I think what you're saying is really, really important there. Um, and, and picking up a couple of points that Clover's just made about that relationship, I think you've got both things emerging at the moment. You've got the awareness of the global village and the interrelationship and the need to care for others elsewhere. So that is growing. The culture of uncare which Paul Hoggett in the Climate Psychology Alliance has, has pointed to, in a way, is being unraveled at the moment. There is more care. There is more caring. Caring for neighbours, caring for others elsewhere in the world, and appreciation of people who care for us. So that is growing. But at the other end of the spectrum, the opposite is also growing. So you've got people finding blame and not caring and building walls and shutting boundaries and shutting barriers and shutting borders to keep people out. So you've got both emerging more strongly at the moment, which is inevitable when you're in a time of change. So you've got all the positive stuff, which is amazing, you know, and at the same time, we've got the opposite. We've got less care than ever before. We've got you know, people in refugee camps and in prisons being and care homes, you know, being locked in and pretty much sentenced to death as the virus runs through them, right? We've got 
different countries building walls and closing their borders to people. Now, this is a taste of what's going to happen with the climate emergency. This is just a tiny little version. It's like if you think this is bad, then just multiply this by 500 because when we've got more climate refugees, it's going to be much bigger. When Bangladesh, Vanuatu, the Maldives, the Marshall Islands, when they're underwater, where are those people going to go? So at the moment, you know, we've got a microcosm of what will come, which is giving us an opportunity to learn and to explore and experiment and grow into the things we need to do in order to make this change. I love Clover's phrase when she talks about thinking about how we're going to show up to this. And I think that is what we need to spend more time thinking about, not just how we deal with the here and now, but then how we're going to deal with this on a bigger scale in the future, because that is what's coming. And it's, I think it's about holding the tension between those two polarities, because you've got the worst of things and humanity happening at the moment and the best. You've got this wonderful example of care alongside this extraordinary example of failure to care being shown throughout the world. And if we could hold the tension of those opposites, something else can emerge in the middle. But it is about holding that tension and not rushing into one or the other. So I think we need to keep the eye on both of these. Yeah. Um, and how, how, how can we, and I think it's really interesting, and, and again, we, a few times it's come up, the polarity of, I suppose it's in everything, isn't it? You, you, there's never one thing without the other, but how can people keep? I'm getting something to show you. I will describe, I'll try and describe it. <laughs> so we have a sheep a sheep and we have the shark shark <laughs> I used to have puppets like that I love them okay I'm looking forward to this more <laughs> it's so much easier just to tell you and then you can do some narrative yeah. so you're right so here is uncare self-destructiveness hatred, and frankly, the side of humanity that would actually prefer to destroy the environment than admit that we're wrong. This is our ego. This is destructiveness. This is annihilation. This is the part of humanity that says, we don't care about people dying because they're poor or brown or black or they live in a different country. Let them, yeah, who, who cares? That's humanity. Yeah. And this is the humanity that says, no, we need to care. This is important. This is crucial because our future is bound up with them. What sort of world do we want to live in if we're living in a world where we, we are willingly prepared to sacrifice half the population in order that the other half can thrive? Now, the problem is if those two parts are split from the individual, then you can either see that aspect, in which case this is unconscious, right? It's out of view. Or you can see this part of humanity and this is out of view, right? Mm -hmm. So the way to deal with this is bring together the tension, bring them both into conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. You have to see both and hold the impossibility of recognizing that this is what makes us human. So the only way I can understand that is by understanding the part of myself that 
understands what it's like to want to destroy, to annihilate, that can empathize with that apocalyptic desire and destructiveness. And the part of me that says, no, we should care. No, this is important. You with me? So, and it's the tension between these. If these go to war and you try and claim one or the other, then you are splitting Mm. what it means to be human. And actually in healing that relationship between these two parts, we have the capacity to understand our destructiveness and not act it out. It's the acting it out from the unconscious that's the danger. That's the risk. So we're not Mm -hmm. saints, but we're not sinners either. We need to have the marriage of the shark and the sheep, symbolically. And that brings wisdom. So then we can see the other side of the argument and make a choice. But if you go into denial of the other side of the argument, the other aspects, then it is the shadow. We're pushing it away and it will erupt as it does when we have shootings in schools and when we have people acting out this destruction and annihilation and not caring about the deaths of koala bears and children because they don't count. Well, they do count. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect sense. Thank you for doing the, the video. Okay. I think that's going to have to be a little video clip so people can see that because it, it does, it is really helpful, I think. And how much would you say again that people are, how can people not be afraid to, to, to bring forward out of the shadows all of the, this, this amalgamation of, of, and this cocktail of different emotions? What are things, what do we all need to be doing practically? What do we all, how do we need to be managing our mindset and also um, sort of emotionally? What, if I'm going to, if you, each of you could sort of say, what are practical things? What do we, how do we need to be managing our mindset and, and, and what actions do we need to be taking or not taking? What, what, what would be your sort of biggest bits of advice on that? If we start, Clover, if we go back to you. Sure. So I, I love this, this little puppet show because not only is it reflective of what needs to happen internally, but of course it's reflective of what needs to happen in society. You know, we have a tendency to other and we other when we don't understand and we other when, as Caroline said, we're at war with something within ourselves. Right? Charles Eisenstein also talks about this in the context of, you know, when you want to create change, it isn't about, you know, in the context of climate, it isn't about pointing the finger at the oil executive or the banker and saying, you're wrong, I'm right, you're bad, I'm good. It's about changing the narrative. It's about changing the story and recognizing that there is a part of yourself, no matter how deeply buried, that wishes you were in that position just as much as there's a part of that person there who might seem like your enemy or your polar opposite who's desperate to do what you're doing. Um, So I'm most interested in how to facilitate, you know, a conversation between the person gluing themselves to the shell building and the chief executive within that glass building to understand where the similarities are and how we can begin to reconcile this division and this polarity in society. So I would say that, the first invitation would be to begin to face up to those things you don't want to internally and then use all of the gifts that come from that 
to better empathize with the very people you want to influence and create change with. It's that exchange that really, really excites me. Um, and then in terms of kind of tangibles, much of what we do at Force of Nature is around how do you bring together the problem that you most want to solve in the world? And we might refer to this as your kind of pain point, the thing that really triggers you emotionally, the problem that ignites a fire in your belly, be that food waste or microplastics or prison reform. What's that thing that sets you alight? And then showing up to solve that with your passion. So where you are smartest, where you're most gifted, you know, we all get churned through an education system, unless we go to school in the jungle, uh, that teaches us largely to become a set of averages, right? And to spread us out, spread ourselves thin across lots of different areas. And often we don't have the opportunity to really dive deep into where we're most gifted. Um, Howard Gardner talks about theory of multiple intelligences, everything from interpersonal, your ability to relate to others through to intrapersonal, through to linguistic and communicative. Where do you fit into that kind of paradigm? Where are you most gifted? And how can you marry these two things to find your power. Now, lots of the young people we work with, one of their biggest kind of inhibitors to taking action is first the belief that the system is too broken to create meaningful change. And second, that they're too small to do anything about it. And so as we were talking about earlier, our sense of power and perception of power needs to change to realize that actually we have this enormous well within each and every one of us but that is dependent on us no longer sweeping our feelings under the rug about the state of the world because it's screwed, right? As Caroline said, we don't want to go back to business as usual because business as usual was terrible and we were on track and still are to flying off this cliff with the climate and ecological crisis. So own up to how you really feel about these things and then channel that energy in a very compassionate way to yourself and to others into taking action. That would be my advice. Something you said there, and actually uh, that was um, in the episode with both you in, in uh, Caroline's Climate Crisis Conversations, so informative episodes I found them. And, and one of the most confronting things I found, I've now listened to um, the episode with both, where you were both in conversation three times, because the first time I found one thing in particular you said so confronting about it, it's too late. It is too late for so many species. And the first time I listened, I was sort of like this washing over me of, oh my God, like terror, like terror, I'll admit. And then suddenly from that, then came a sense of hope, which I haven't actually got the, yeah, formulated kind of what it was. And then I listened to then another time, I listened back to that that same bit again. And again, there was, there was interestingly now having spoken to you both, I can actually I'm this realization as I'm saying it. There was both. I haven't actually quite formulated that. There was the fear and the hope, and realizing that they were both there. But I'm wondering, Clover, can you talk a little bit if, as it is too late, and for so many people, I'm sure will ha- listening to this will have that same reaction. I did that. That terror, that huge wave of anxiety. How how can we move forward from from that? How can we remain hopeful when? whilst acknowledging mm. it is too late. Mm. Yeah, that that tension that you're feeling within yourself, we've all been there. And many people would say that, you know, to 
have a really grounded kind of hope lies neither in despair and nihilism and resigning yourself to this idea that it's too late, nor does it lie in tipping to this kind of utopian optimistic view that everything's going to be okay and that technology will deliver on all of its promises. You see some really interesting manifestations of that when we talk about geoengineering and a bit like what Caroline was saying, oh, we'll get back to you and everything will be fine. You know, it's, we try to control and we try to tell ourselves stories that make us believe everything will be okay. And in fact, following down that path, we're not going to make any progress. We're going to move backward. But in holding the tension, as hard as that can be, that's where some level of redemption lies. And this is what is so difficult about a crisis like climate change. Um, because it is not the problem, because it is the symptom of broken systems, everything from the clothes on my back to the food in my fridge to how I got here to rural Vermont, right? The symptoms of broken systems. And we realize by the very nature of just existing in the 21st century that we are all responsible, that we're all complicit. That also means that we have been complicit in the destruction of the natural world. You know, there are many, many species lost every single day that we will never recover. That's super hard <laughs> to look in the face of because you can say, oh, well, you know, we might be able to get within a certain degree of warming, but that's not acknowledging all the damage already inflicted. So we need to acknowledge, we need to accept. And only in accepting that are we then able to find the flickers of forgiveness toward ourselves and toward humanity and not subscribing to the story that we've gotten here because we're fundamentally bad. No, we're a set of polarities, right? Caroline just demonstrated that. And only in waking up the best parts of ourselves that are seated in connection, community, collaboration, being in service, being what it means to be human, you know, only in focusing in on those are we going to get to that better, brighter future that we're all so, so desperate for. But you have to create this container within yourself, exactly as you said, to hold space for those really juxtaposed feelings. Um, and Caroline, I'll, I'll pass the baton over to you at that point. <laughs> I love what you're saying, Clover. Um, I really do, um, except for one thing, <laughs> which when you say the brighter future, and and I, I'm not in disagreement that we don't need a better, brighter future, but I think we also need a darker future, and we need we need to bring that shadow with us if we're going to have the wisdom to not just replicate and make these mistakes all over again. Mm. So, you know, we could go to a utopian, you know, if we went and, you know, colonized Mars, it wouldn't take long before we turned it into this sort of mess. Because mm. it's a bit like, you know, humans, you know, so you're in a relationship with someone and it goes wrong and you think, okay, tell you what, the next person I fall in love with, it'll all be different. And I'm never going to make that mistake again. And then, so you pick someone who's completely different. And then, you know, six months or a year down the line, you think, well, hang on a minute. This is the same argument that I was having with the last person. 
How come I? How come this is happening again with a completely different person? So you break up with them, and you think, right, next time I'm going to get it right. Next time I'm going to pick someone who's so radically different that it'll all be okay. And so you do that, and then two years down the line, you find yourself having the same argument that you were having with the last one and the one before that, right? So it's about recognizing that those patterns, those unconscious patterns will be repeated. They will replicate. They will unconsciously be acted on again and again and again. We will unconsciously recreate those conditions again and again and again until we see them and until we face them and until we realize that those are unconscious choices that we're making. As we bring that into conscious awareness and are more likely to bring that into a sense of, and this is where Clover's talking about culpability and choice and responsibility, then we're more able to be able to make different choices in the future. But unless we recognize the patterns and the pathways that we've taken to get into this place in the first place, we won't find a different way out. So we have to look backwards in order to find ways forwards as well. Not just to look backwards in order to give ourselves a hard time and blame people for historic mistakes, but to learn the lessons of history. We have to figure out how we got here in order to find a way forwards as well. So that's the kind of psychotherapeutic move, if you like, where we have to kind of go, hang on a minute. You know, what is it? Where did this go wrong in the first place? And out of that I think comes a what in the climate psychology alliance we talk about radical hope not naive hope that we can fix this because actually the world is not something that needs to be fixed the world is simply imperfect in the way as same way as we're imperfect human beings the world is imperfect and I don't want to fix the world I don't want to turn it into this utopian vision I want it to be flawed and I want to have that flaw and not let those, that, that flawedness and that woundedness and that imperfection dominate and overwhelm the beauty and mm. the grace and the joy and the connection. I want both. And in order to kind of heal that splitting, we need a kind of imaginal creative way through that. So I do want the future to emerge differently in some ways, but I don't want it to always be brighter because I want us to take this grief and this shadow with us because that's what gives us depth. And in a way, so I'm going to move to a slightly different language. In a way, that's what our soul needs to grow. So this is moving slightly away from the kind of personality culture of the human individual ego and saying that actually for true wisdom to develop, it's a pathway of the soul. And the soul can embrace both perfect and imperfect, good and bad, light and dark, right and wrong. And we need both because without both, without our failure, we won't have success. And that's what it means to be human. And it's healing that split and making sure that that doesn't therefore become painfully acted out in the world and projected onto others who we then, you know, I like Clover's talking about the othering. Othering legitimizes treating others as less than. And it legitimizes that destructiveness 
So it's about pulling back that projection. So we see that in doing this to others, we're doing it to ourselves. And I know that, you know, both Clover and I are, are talking in quite, you know, metaphorical, symbolic, sometimes idealistic ways. But we're also, we're trying to paint a bigger picture whilst within it, also talking about practical small things. So if we could see that every small thing we did did make a difference, both practically and symbolically, we would value those small things. And if every person on the planet was able to act on those small things, we would have a revolution. Mm. If every child stopped buying children's comics with plastic toys on the front, it would be a revolution. We would have revolutionary change overnight. If we moved towards framing choices in the world to be based on needs rather than wants, making choices based on what do we need as opposed to what do we want, which actually this current pandemic is forcing us to do. You might want to go out, you might want to fly, you might want to eat meat, you might want to do those things, but do you need to? No. Mm -hmm. Frequently, the answer is no. You don't need to. So it's about wrestling the ego into shape and asking those really important, simple questions. Do you need to do this? Then mm. the answer frequently is no. What we need is in, you know, in the privileged position that the three of us are sitting in, our needs are being met. So anything beyond that is simply what we want. And what we want may be destructive to the greater good, to the greater environment, to others. In which case, we should choose to say no to those wants. It doesn't mean you don't want them. I want to fly. I want to go on holiday. I want to do those things. Of course I do. But do I need to? Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, on a personal level, when things started locking down, I felt enormous overwhelm I felt frustration I had all of those feelings kind of bubble to the surface and in large part because I was stuck in my own ego so my first reaction was oh no what does this mean for the organization what does it mean for all of this amazing projects we had planned this year and speaking engagements all that kind of stuff that was where my brain defaulted to and then I had a great conversation with my mom who Caroline would get along with like a house on fire and she said this isn't about you. Um, right now you need to be fully in service and you need, every decision needs to come from a place of contribution. And that I feel is a message that we all really need to appreciate. Exactly. As Caroline just said, you know, we're in this actually relative enormous place of privilege. You know, if you own a telephone, if you have a roof over your head, if you have a comfortable bed to sleep on, if you have a fridge full of food, you are in a place of privilege. Mm. How can you draw on that to help other people who are nowhere near as fortunate? And in doing so, I think lies finding purpose, being in service of something that is much bigger. It's an asking, not what can I do for myself, but what can I do for that person over there, my brother or my sister who lives in a different part of the world or the next door neighbor who is experiencing incredible loneliness and suffering. You know, it's that, it's that real kind of reframe. And what I would say is that, you know, when I talk about a better, brighter future, I only say that because I feel like as a society, we are in large part lacking vision. 
we're lacking a, a narrative to subscribe to. You talked about story and narrative, Caroline. Um, and often that is glamorized in, in the wrong framing of this kind of utopian, perfect society. And in fact, for me, finding the vision most tangibly is at looking at the present moment, at the pockets of the future that I want to kind of add fertilizer to, that I want to nourish. And if you go on, you know, mass media, if you go onto Twitter, you're funneled down a vortex of the worst parts of society. You're, you said that catastrophization you're fed the harrowing stories and it's all done in such a way that reinforces your own kind of apathy because it's so much it's so overwhelming but then you flip that and you start to look for the stories of people who are being courageous who are helping others who are doing the incredible the seemingly impossible that's where my hope lies and by spotlighting those individuals and awakening in ourselves those same values of how we can help one another, how we can help the planet. That I feel is where that future lies. Mm, yeah. I completely agree about that kind of curating your, the, the information that, that you're getting in, in a way that um, empowers you and, and getting clear on your vision is so sort of to, to summarize as I suppose a few sort of nuggets that you both said there it's being aware of the impact of our individual actions and actually collectively if we all change little things about our lifestyle what we're consuming what we're buying how we're living those have huge impacts collectively um checking in the ego and 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 making sure that we're coming from a place of of need and or differentiating between wants and needs and getting clear on on purpose and 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 how you can be of service would there be anything else for anyone listening who is feeling powerless who is perhaps feeling anxious in in the face of the climate crisis what would be your sort of parting um bits of, of, of advice of how they can feel a little bit more empowered um I would start off by saying, find your tribe. That is essential. Um, we tend to fixate, and Caroline can speak this further, but we tend to fixate on the hero in the journey and the one individual. And we forget the entire village. And there's that great kind of viral video of the guy who starts dancing on a mountainside. I'm not sure if you've seen this at a festival. And he's there alone a little bit. And then suddenly the second person joins and he starts a movement. And I think, you know, that's the incredible thing that we've seen with the youth strikers, with people taking to the streets. Is In fact, it's, it's rallying people around you, inviting them into this with you and holding space for one another. Um, that would be, I mean, for me has been really, really important knowing that I can call Caroline at, you know, two in the morning and she would pick up, have a GNT and just talk about how I'm feeling. Um, we need that. We desperately need that. And now more than ever before. Um, so, so that would be my, my parting piece of advice. Mm. Mm. I agree. Kindness and, uh, to ourselves and to others and self-compassion so if you're feeling anxious or if you're feeling afraid and you know to develop that capacity for compassion for that frightened part of yourself to take care of that frightened part of yourself rather than reject that part of yourself rather than see your eco-anxiety your fear as your enemy to be got rid of rather than hearing the message from it 
it's really about how you interpret the message it's giving you. If you interpret the message is, I'm being threatened, I'm afraid, I'm alone, I can't cope, this is bad, this is wrong, I shouldn't be feeling this, then you're going to feel pretty bad. Mm. Whereas if you interpret the message of your from your eco-anxiety as a message like a postcard coming from a part of you that is feeling vulnerable and afraid and needs a cuddle and needs you to be your own best friend there and needs to be held and contained and loved and taken care of and get on the phone to your friends and get on the phone to your pack and your tribe, then you are taking care of that frightened part of yourself and you won't feel so scared. You won't feel alone. That eco-anxiety is probably telling you that you need to feel loved and you need to give love to others. So actually, next time you feel it, go, oh, hello, welcome. And how can I listen to you and listen to your message and go out and do something loving as a result of hearing you? And it'll, it'll go away because you'll have got the real message that you're supposed to be getting. The message you're supposed to be getting is not, you're too vulnerable, you're too afraid, you're all on your own, it's all doom and gloom, it's terrible, you can't cope. That's the wrong message. The message is, you are connected, loads of people love you, you're a wonderful human being, get in touch with those other people and talk to them. Because they'll get you, and you'll get yourself, and we may be going off a cliff, but we're going to do it together with lots of good people here. And we're going to be doing our absolute best in the meantime to care about each other and care about the environment. And there's nothing else we can do. We've incarnated into this world at this point in time for a reason. And that reason is to connect with each other and do what we can right now. I like Clover's mm. argument about being in service. It is about allowing yourself to be part of this process whilst not being completely helpless and carried away, you can navigate, but you cannot control this process. If you attempt to control it, you are lost. You will have no chance. And then you will get rigid and then you'll get even more anxious because you're not in control. But that doesn't mean you can't be in charge of yourself and it doesn't mean you can't be in better relationship with your own feelings. And it doesn't mean you can't be your own best friend. And it doesn't mean you cannot learn to listen to your anxiety and your fear and your grief and welcome the messages that, you're, that they're bringing you because they're teaching you wisdom. And if every time they pop up and go, here's your gift, and you go, go away, I hate you, then you're just at war with yourself, right? Because actually, you won't, your anxiety will not destroy you, Right? Your anxiety is bringing you a gift and you just keep slamming the door on it. So just open the door and say, come on in, sit down, have a cup of tea, tell me what you want to tell me, right? Welcome it because you can cope with it. You'll be fine with it. And just so the image I often use, Clover will have heard this before, is just imagine yourself to be this hole, in which case you can be a form of public transport like a bus, and on every seat in the bus, you need a different part of yourself. So your anxiety has a seat on the bus. Your depression has a seat on the bus. Your despair has a seat on the bus. Your four-year-old has a seat on the bus. Your baby has a seat on the bus. Your really annoying teenager self has a seat on the bus. 
The part of you that is desperate to have children has a seat on the bus. The part of you that never wants to have a baby as long as you live has a seat on the bus. The part of you that desperately wants to save the world has a seat on the bus. The part of you thinks, who thinks, well, I'm only going to save part of the world because some of them are real idiots, she has a seat on the bus too. All these parts of you, your anger, your rage, your despair, your joy, your creativity, your imaginal self, they all sit on this bus. Some of them might be having an argument with each other on the back seat, but that's fine. Do not try and throw off any of those parts of yourself because all that's going to happen is they're going to come down the road after you. You're going to see them in the rearview mirror and you'll live in fear of these parts of yourself hammering on the door trying to dominate. What's crucial here is don't let any of them get hold of the steering wheel for any too long a period of time. Thank you. There's so much in there. I know that I've got so much because I know that everyone listening is going to have so, so, get so much out of this. And thank you both so much um, for sharing. Just to um, wrap up a question that I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is what does curiosity mean to you and why do you think it is helpful? Clover, how about you? Um, What does curiosity mean? Curiosity, very simply, is just asking a bunch of questions. Um, I think one of the reasons why we are maybe scared of taking action sometimes is because we feel like we don't know enough. And my experience, be it working with 11-year-olds or working with, you know, leaders of multinational companies or politicians, is that actually we don't know all that much. (laughs) And a lot of people are just figuring it out as they go. So being very humble and having a lot of humility and being okay with not having the answers all the time Um, asking questions I feel is the most powerful gift that we have and it is in maintaining that curiosity toward ourselves toward the future that is possible the curiosity toward your fellow human that is what is going to invite the collaboration the empathy the opportunity to work together um, to really take action in a meaningful way Um, and as Caroline was just saying curiosity is you know rather than fully uh, feeling beholden to your feelings in a way that scares you, taking more of a curious mindset, you know, when that anxiety bubbles up or that fear bubbles up, having a conversation with it, asking questions, um, that's what curiosity means to me. Thank you. I, lo- I love it. You said that. How about you, Caroline? Just quickly to... to... Yeah, I mean, for me, it means looking under the surface. It means looking around corners. It means... Um, allowing for the unexpected and staying open to um, not thinking that we know everything. There's a really lovely quote, which I'm not going to get exactly right, but um, it's, it's, you know, people can sort of think they've become the final version of themselves. And that means there's nothing left to discover. There's no growth. There's nothing that will surprise you in life. And that is like a living death, really, that we should always stay open to constant growth and change. And we should never stop changing and growing and being surprised and looking on in absolute wonder and seeing things afresh and anew and allowing ourselves to constantly be learning new stuff. It keeps us alive. Indeed. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. 
Thank you both. I could talk to you both for a very long time, but I, <laughs> I won't keep you there. Um, where can everyone listening find you, Clover? Uh, just at Clover Hogan on all the platforms. <laughs> And how about you, Caroline? Yeah, same. You can find me on Twitter. I've got a website. You can just Google my name. You can find me through the University of Bath um, and through the Climate Psychology Alliance podcast, Catastrophe or Transformation. Amazing. Thank you both so, so much. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a rating and review letting me know what your biggest takeaways were. I love reading each and every one. Thank you to Simproof for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget that you can get 15% off with discount code CuriosityClub15. As we're all curious folk around here, why not head over to simprove.com to find out more. Until next time, stay curious.